Alright, welcome. I wanted to spend this time to talk about why I wrote this book, God is Just Like Jesus. It's volume one. There's a series. We've got volume two and volume three coming in 2021 and 2022. I was on a Zoom meeting this morning and with a number of people and you're invited to Zoom online discussions. We'll look at passages about how Jesus relates to people. We discuss it. I kind of direct the flow of the passages we look at, but it's it's all discussion. And when we look at how Jesus relates to people, we then figure out, you know, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you want to uh, look at one of those or attend one of those with us in Zoom, go to the website, GodIsJustLikeJesus.com. Look for Zoom or online discussions. You'll find a schedule or email me, Chris, at GodIsJustLikeJesus.com. The book's going to be available through Amazon. We're going to publish it December 1st, 2020. So today we are looking at why uh, did I write the series? And I realized that so often uh, in culture, we can look at the Bible for biblical principles. We can look at other religions even for good principles, you know, be honest, tell you the truth, or, or philosophies. And biblical principles are great, you know, good principles from other religions, it's good, but it's so different going deeper and actually knowing Jesus. God's invisible, he doesn't speak to us audibly, at least not usually, and so when we talk about relating to him, you know, it's the Holy Spirit that helps us navigate that and connect with God. It's possible and it's more than just taking in doctrine and then being able to articulate our doctrine. There is a communion in the Holy Spirit in our prayer time, in our worship, in our spiritual lives. I realized that many times it's easier to kind of relate to God, at least initially in our walk with God, transactionally. What I mean by that is there's kind of an unspoken thing and the Christian version of it, and there's other religious versions and philosophical versions of this, people wouldn't say it, but what they say is, if I do X, God, you need to do Y. And it can go along the lines of, hey, if I give money, then I expect you to do Y. If I serve others, I expect you to do Y. If I... Um, you know, take in the right biblical doctrines and can say them, I expect you to do why. If I practice social justice, I, I expect you to do why. It's, it can be this kind of transactional kind of relationship. And that's a great place to start. I don't want to knock that because God knows how to work with us every baby step we take in responding to him. I always think he initiates towards us and we respond back to him. So I'm not knocking that, but there's a deeper thing than transactionally trying to get God to do what we want him to do. And it's this thing of knowing him and listening to him and talking to him and communicating with him. And he says it's this relationship like, I am the, the grape vine that's in the, the, the ground and you are the branches that are attached to the top of the vine where the grapes hang off. And it's like the Holy Spirit's the sap flowing out of Jesus, the vine, into us, the branches bearing fruit. And that fruit you can find in Galatians 5.22 and other places. It's just the fruit of goodness. But it's not performing good deeds to somehow earn God's favor. You just can't do that with him. He's willing to freely 
give us salvation and there's nothing that we can do to earn anything when we respond to him and turn to him we're forgiven and it's awesome you know just knowing what he did for us on the cross and and how he reaches to us so letting go of some of the transactional kind of mindsets is really important so let's let's talk about what's beyond that john 17 3 is a great verse jesus is praying to the father in john 17 and he says this father he says now this is eternal life that they the disciples and all those that would believe him that they may know you he says that's the crux of the matter that they know you right not that they've got all their doctrine just perfect or they've given so much money or they've done social justice actions or they perform this or perform that you know in america and the west we're so task oriented we almost reduce it to that he says no it's it's knowing you and he says he continues in verse six he says i and again he's talking to his father he says father i've manifest your name to the people you gave me so i want you to hit the pause on your screen for just a moment and ask yourself what does he mean by that right talk to yourself or your small group what does he mean when he says father i've manifest or revealed your name to the people you gave me hit pause it's really important to do this so that you can digest it for yourself and come back So he's saying to his father, he says, I have revealed your name. And, and the name of God, we know in the Old Testament would be Yahweh, right? But, but in the old world, a name was intimately connected to someone's character. They would name someone prophetically about, you know, their character, who they were. And Jesus is saying, Yes, I came to die on the cross and forgive everyone's sins who would turn to me and receive that. But I also came to reveal exactly who you are, God. Even though you're invisible, even though you don't speak to us audibly, I'm revealing exactly who you are. Now, that's, that's a major mission statement of what, why Jesus came to planet Earth, right? He was God forever before and then before he became a baby when one day he became a baby in Mary's womb and grew up to be a man and he revealed the father and sometimes we undervalue what that was all about that whole part of his mission but that's what he did so we're moving from having a transactional relationship in God hey if I do this you do that to knowing God because that's what he says in John 17 3 he says salvation's about actually knowing you and I revealed who you are to them in 17.6. Well, Paul, interestingly, because it's the Holy Spirit orchestrating all this with Jesus, Paul, and everyone, in Ephesians 17, he prays, he's praying to the Father, and listen to what he prays. He says, glorious Father, he goes, I pray that you would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know you better. Right? Glorious Father, I pray that you would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So what? So they would know you better. Hit pause for a minute. What, what does that mean to you? Hit pause and then come back. I, I just think it's so worth digesting these passages and 
talking, trying to talk back and forth as much as you can over a video, he says it's all about receiving the Holy Spirit, Him giving us insight, revelation, wisdom. It's like understanding and knowing you better. That's the crux of the matter. Now, I want to contrast this to the one talent guy in Matthew 25. <clears throat> in Matthew 25, God gives one person ten talents, one person five talents, one person one talent, and says, use them and make an increase, you know, risk, and when I come back, we'll settle up. Well, it's interesting, the ten talent guy makes ten more talents, five talent guy makes five more talents, the one talent guy, he's afraid, he hides his one talent, and when God comes back, he says, here's your talent, like I was afraid of you, and basically I hate it, I didn't do anything with you, with it. And so you got to ask yourself, why did the one talent guy do that? And it becomes really clear. His whole picture of God, his whole image of God is really screwed up and it's shot through with fear and lies. He thinks, and you can see this in Matthew 25, 24, he thinks God is a, quote, hard man. And he says, I knew you demanded a harvest where you have not sown seed. And you got to say, hold on a second. God gave you a talent of gold. And that's clearly, you know, you, you do your research on what a talent is, it's a thousand dollars or way more of, of money. And so he's given him a thousand, he could have bought all the seed he wanted in the world to plant and have a harvest, but he didn't do it. So God was generous, he gave him this one talent, it doesn't say the guy worked for it, it didn't say any of them worked for it, he gave them these things. And he said, use it. The one talent guy, because his image of God is so wrong, he's really got the character of the devil attached to God's name, right? Rather than God's character uh, undergirding his name. And that's really the point of the series, right? Knowing God's character. So if the one talent guy can reorient his mindset and think, hey, God's not a hard man. God hasn't demanded a harvest where he hasn't given me any seed. He's given me a thousand dollars or well more. Um, I'm going to use that and, and create a harvest. And then you, you look at what the master says to the ten talent, five talent guys. He goes, well done. He goes, come enter your master's happiness, you know, and rule over all these things with me. He's wanting to invite people in. Well, at the beginning of Matthew 25, another point about God's goodness in this, it says he gives each according to their abilities, right? So for the 10 talent guy, he gives him 10 talents, right? He doesn't give him less because he doesn't want, he knows the 10 talent guy can manage 10 talents. He doesn't want him to be bored or disconnected or like, oh man, I just feel kind of useless. I got one talent, but I can manage 10. So God gives him 10. The one talent guy, he only gives him one talent. He doesn't give him 10 talents because he knows that would overwhelm and break that man. He gives him one talent because he knows, I know you can manage this if you'll engage. And you don't have to engage perfectly, but if you will try and work with this one talent, you'll have a harvest as well. So here's just another point in this, this parable. It used to be my most hated parable. Um, but then one day the Holy Spirit started showing me there's several good things about God in here that you're missing. I'm like, wow, he gave each according to their ability, not too much, not too little. Well, as we work through the study about who God is, and in volume one, 
we look at how Jesus relates to the disciples in their less than stellar moments, right, of failure and sin and screwing up. And what we find time and time again, Jesus never accuses them. He never fault finds them. He never condemns them. He never rejects them and he never shames them. Every time they screw up in sin, Jesus encourages, he patiently instructs them. I mean, time and time again, he reasons with them and instructs them patiently. I mean, it's awesome. Sometimes he challenges them. Sometimes he corrects them, but it's correction without rejection. And sometimes, I mean, there's some discipline, like when Peter's like wanting to take over Jesus. I'm like, you will not go to the cross. And, and, and Peter rebukes him and, and Jesus disciplines him. You know, get behind me, Satan. He goes, you don't even know what you're doing. I have to be in the driver's seat. Even when Jesus disciplines, it's always for our good that we would relate to ourselves better and relate to others in more healthy and caring ways. So, uh, so that's what we found in, in volume one. So if the 10 ta- if all of us one, one talent people, we can, and th- cause this is my journey. I had to get my, well, it's not that I had to do it. The Holy Spirit interacted with me to change my mindset so that I could see God's goodness more and more and more. And as my image of God, my picture of God shifted and I saw his goodness, I was like, oh, like I could take a breath, like being, you know, knowing God and being a, a Christian, like I could just take a breath. It was good. I realized he cares about me. He's not just always, you know, trying to beat me up and get me to be a good person and earn, you know, his approval. He likes me already and he saved me through the cross and all oh, the freshness of just seeing how Jesus related to the disciples and their failure and sin. Man, it was good. And what that revealed about God the Father. So if all of us one talent people can just dial into that, take a breath and just know that God loves us and we can enjoy and delight in him back, boy, that's the key to, uh, you know, that abundant life Jesus talks about. So the one talent man stands in contrast to knowing God. Well, we looked at this prayer, Paul said, I want to, you know, Father, give him the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. In the Old Testament, it's the same thing, right? Same God in the Old Testament, New Testament, although we get real confused about a bunch of things that happened in the Old Testament because of the barbaric culture they lived in, but more on that later. Jeremiah 9.23 says it this way. He says, um, I don't want the wise man to boast. I don't want the strong man to boast. I don't want the rich man to boast. He says, but let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. It's like, whoa, there it is again. That's Old Testament. Yeah, I know. It's the same thing as John 17, 3. Salvation is knowing Jesus. And he goes on. He says, um, let him boast that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, and get this, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness or goodness. Righteousness is a complex word. Kindness, justice, and goodness on the earth. He goes, for in these I delight. Man, don't you want to worship a God who exercises kindness, justice, and goodness on the earth? And he delights in those things. It's not just his program his theological agenda, it's just not his doctrine. Like he delights in these things. It's a heart level thing with God, right? When we reduce our Christian faith to just 
assimilating mental doctrines that we can pop off out of our mouths, but it's not connecting to our heart. I mean, good theology is just way deeper than just a mental level. Good theology is visceral and it involves the heart, right? And that's what God wants for us. Well, when God talks about knowing him, he describes himself, right, in character attributes, kindness, justice, and goodness. Isn't that interesting? So this whole thing, John 17, 3, about knowing him, it's very relevant. And again, that's why we did the book, God is Just Like Jesus. Um, just time and time again. So I want to go way back, a little bit further before Jeremiah, uh, to Moses' day. He got to interact with God several times. There's an amazing one in Exodus 34, 5. Moses gets the privilege of hearing the Lord declare his name. I don't know where you're listening to this, but if you have the opportunity to stop right now, go read Exodus 34, 5, and it might be 6 or 7. Read that passage, and when God declares his name, tell me, what does he do? What does he say? Right? If you can do that, go hit pause and come back, because it's amazing. Well, I hate to give it away, and hopefully you went and did that because the part that you get from the Holy Spirit, that's just so much more valuable than what I, what I have to say. And, uh, but hopefully the Holy Spirit's using what I have to say as well. But reading that passage, what happens is God declares his name, the Lord, to Moses. And guess what happens, right? I'm going to read it to you. He says, God speaking to Moses, I mean, that would shake you in your boots in a wonderful way. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and that's generations if you read Deuteronomy 5, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I mean, massive forgiveness, right? Don't you love that? Wickedness, rebellion, sin. So when the Lord shows up to declare his name, the Lord, right? What he do, does is he describes his character. That's fascinating. And that's different than a lot of people. They People think of God's glory as the light show and the power that emanates from him. And yeah, true. I mean, he created the universe without even straining himself. He created the earth, the solar system, all of it. His power is unlimited, but he talks to us about worshiping him because of who he is, right? I don't think God's as impressed with power as we are. He's curious if you or someone else has some power, how are you using it? What's your character? And what you find in Revelation 4 and 5 is when the angels and the four living creatures and the elders are all falling down before Jesus on the throne. The Holy Spirit is the torches and Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is that they're saying, you're holy, holy, holy. And when we translate that, what that means is they're saying, you're so unique, you're so unique, you're so other than we are, you're so unusual. And part of what they're, they're going to be talking about is you were all powerful and yet you used your power to humble yourself, become a human, and love the least and the last. Though, and not just the least and the last, all of us covered in, you know, doing some good things and doing evil things and doing good things and doing evil things. This mixture of good and evil and, and, and people who are your enemies. And 
You used your power to come get us and rescue us. Like who uses power that way? Usually in our governments, people with power dominate and control others, but not God, not Jesus. He's so different. He's so different than people the way they use power in Hollywood, the, pay, the way people use power in sports or politics. And there's some good people that, that do pretty good, a few of them in those arenas, but most of them use power to serve their own needs and pleasures and wants, but not God, not Jesus. He's amazing. The Lord, the Lord, he says to Moses, I'm compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, again, of generations, um, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's just, it's incredible. So, in the Old Testament, God shows up and when he talks about himself, he gives a character description. In the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to the Father, he says, salvation is actually knowing you. It's more than just relating to you transactionally. It's, it's more than just taking on doctrine and being able to say it with your mouth. It's, it's in the heart. It's our prayer lives, our worship lives are visceral, and it's engaging. Um, and it's just, it's why we wrote the whole book series Volume 1 is coming out again, December 1st on Amazon 2020. Volume 2 and 3 will be there as well. But it's about knowing Him. And I just wanted to conclude that um, when you know Him and you know He cares about you, He goes first in loving us. And 1 John 4.19 says we love Him back because He first loved us, right? Um, we don't have to do this great thing like, oh, I'm so dedicated to God on my own. It's like, no, God was dedicated to you before you even ever cared about him. And now you get to respond to be dedicated back to him. But he always goes first to love us and we love him back. And we, that transforms our actions and how we do all kinds of things in life, right? In the end of the age, it's going to be a clash of two houses of worship. The beast will arise and he will draw people to himself through all the Hollywood hype and glitter, through all the political manipulation and power and rewarding people for doing what he wants and saying things that he once said and all the military might. And he will get many people to be fascinated with him and thereby worship him. But Jesus will also be glorious and amazing. And he's the lion and the lamb. And, and the names in the Bible are contrasted for that. The beast will be treacherous and he will use his power to manipulate and control and, and destroy people's lives, but reward them with power and pleasure for a limited time. Jesus is the lion and the lamb, right? He's ultimately strong and powerful, and yet he's humble and has compassion. And we see all these things in his character in the series that we're looking at. But it will be a clash of two houses of worship. And we get to set the goodness of Jesus in front of our own hearts when we're cold and worn out and burned out. But seeing Jesus' goodness revives us because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And we get to set the goodness of Jesus, not only doctrine. We want the best possible doctrine because we, we don't want to be confused. But we want to set Jesus in front of our children that he would warm their hearts by the Holy Spirit and they would also be worshipers of the God-man.
And so that's what the whole book series is about. It's what we talked about on Zoom to get today. I hope that this, again, transactionally relating to Jesus is a great place to start, but we want to go deeper where, you know, in, in John 16, he's telling the disciples, I'm going to go away. I've told you all these things so that you'll be unshakable. And Peter went the whole distance, even after denying him later in his life, he became unshakable in Jesus and he went into martyrdom, laid his life down. He says, you have no idea. I've succeeded, but I failed tremendously. The master never gave up on me. He loved me. I'm going to lay my life down to tell you he will love you no matter what you've done. And Peter goes the whole distance and he worships Jesus amazingly because Jesus has loved him incredibly. And I hope that will be all our stories and that all of us one talent people, wherever we are, that our image of God would be healed by the Holy Spirit, but not just healed, matured and grown. That we could take our one talent and do amazing things with it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a good night.